On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Rush's moving pictures. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran, Ken Gregory, and Colby Dransfield as we continue to move through the Rush catalog. This episode discussing the seminal moving pictures. Tonight we are here to discuss Russia's Moving Pictures, yeah. released apparently on the 12th of February, 1981, produced by Rush and Terry Brown, released on the Atlantic label, apparently. That can't be right. No. Mercury. That must, yeah, it's Mercury. It must be a leftover from my, I recycled these sheets. Um. Released on Mercury. Band lineup remains the same as it has been since Fly By Night. So we've got Getty, Alex, and Neil. Moving Pictures is the eighth studio album by the Canadian rock band Rush, released on February 12, 1981 on Anthem Records. After touring to support their previous album, Permanent Waves, 1980, the band started to write and record new material in August 1980 with co-producer Terry Brown. They continued to write songs with a more radio-friendly format, featuring tighter song structures and songs of shorter length compared to their early albums. Moving Pictures received a positive reception from current and retrospective music critics and became an instant commercial success, reaching number one in Canada and number three in the United States and the United Kingdom. It remains Russia's highest-selling album in the United States after it was certified quadruple platinum, by the RIAA for over 4 million copies sold. Limelight, Tom Sawyer, um, and Vital Signs were released as singles across 1981, and the instrumental YYZ, or YYZ if you're Canadian apparently, was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Rock Instrumental Performance. Rush supported the album with a concert tour from September 1980 to July 1981. So, yeah, moving pictures. This is this is the album that most Rush fans will point to when you talk about Rush. Um, it seemed, and and uh, you know, I'm going to kind of go out on a limb here and make a completely unsupported statement. It seems that, and, and I think we've talked before, sort of about the heterogeneous nature of Rush fans. There are some people who got in early and want sort of heavy metal Rush. There were some people who got in sort of, you know, in the in the prog area era and want proggy Rush. There are people who got in, you know, in this era, you know, around here or single signals 
or Grace Under Pressure and want Synthesizer Rush. Um, then you've got people who came in, you know, around counterparts and they want their metal rush, which is maybe different from the early metal. You know, there, there's all kinds of stuff. But the feeling that I get just from, from looking around and listening to things here over the last week is that, you know, if, if there's a Venn diagram of, of Rush fans, moving pictures seems to sit in the middle where all of, you know, part of every circle kind of crosses. Oh, um, nice. yep. and, and I find that to be interesting. Now, me personally... You know, I knew the songs that were on um, were on the radio. I knew, you know, Tom Sawyer, obviously, in Limelight. I knew the first I heard YYZ was, and Ken, you had mentioned this, when you guys played it in my dining room, you know, back when we were teenagers. When we and tried like, to play it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't worked very hard to find a, a that recording because I, I wasn't sure that anyone really wanted to hear it in actuality. Oh, hell um, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But, um, and then, you know, Colby, you had mentioned, you know, when, when you and, uh, and Jay and Paul were in a band, you guys had, you guys did Red Barchetta. That was sort of my, my entry to that. But, it, but again, growing up, you know, I never owned any of these Rush albums. I owned Grace Under Pressure and I owned um, Hold Your Fire. And that was it until, you know, I was in my 30s, I think, when I finally started to buy all of these things. So, you know, it's it was one of those things where I knew this album existed. I knew I had a feeling of the general importance of this album, but I personally had never owned it. And um, I just I find that interesting because, like I said, as as I've done this research, it, it does seem to be this sort of this pivot point where everyone kind of meets up. So and I don't know if you guys have any, any general thoughts on the, the, the record such as that, or. Well, I, I think, um, I have thought of this album moving pictures as kind of like the Led Zeppelin four or even, you know, Van Halen, 1984, where you have sort of like the big, songs that everyone knows in this case Thomas Sawyer um, Red Barchetta YYZ uh, and you know certainly Zeppelin 4 has you know Stairway to Heaven and 1984 has Jump and all that but anyway <laughs> there are that being said um, as big as this album is Moving Pictures it's some of the song, a lot of the songs sort of get overlooked. And I think the album even gets overlooked because um, of uh, the huge mammoth songs that sort of overshadow the other ones. And so this, to me, um, like I, I couldn't, well, two, two things come to mind um, without getting into I know we'll go through song by song at some point, but just an overview. Um, I can listen to this album and enjoy it on a different level uh, in ways that I can't enjoy maybe like an album like Zeppelin 4 just because I'm just, I'm just so 
um, smothered with those songs, rock and roll or whatever. I just, I can't, I can't enjoy, even though it's sort of unfair because there's, there's still good albums, but, um, you know, radio being what it's been uh, over the past, you know, uh, 30, 50 years, um, it just, it just keeps playing the same songs over and over again. And and doesn't give the um, the smaller songs you know their their fair share. That's what having a good album is all about, right? So, anyway, I I think that um, for me, Moving Pictures is a wonderful album that sort of um, gives me things on, on on different levels, and it's sort of um, it's it, it has really nice nice depth to it, not just the big songs. And uh, it's it's just I can I can still listen to it like I would listen to any of the other albums and enjoy them, and um, I think it's a, it's a very it's a very solid record. Yeah, definitely equivalent to Led Zeppelin for um, yeah for me definitely more listenable. I must have listened to this five or six times in preparation for this podcast plus all, all the listens that i did weeks ago when we first started talking about getting into rush and i did not tire of moving pictures now colby you, you swore you would not listen to tom sawyer did you hold up to that no i i listened to it it was good <laughs> i did it was good it was good come on it was good <laughs> it was good you know what it's interesting it's been so long since i listened to it but i think the 2011 remix for me um, and you know, like the bass, Getty's bass on that album is fantastic. I mean, that's mind-bogglingly good. Good engineering, just sounds thick. And the same thing with Perch Drum. All right, you know, maybe for, I'm not bad for a studio album because you know, just speaking for, for for Jay, you know, in this era, it's all about exit stage left. Um, uh, so you know, you know, it, so maybe the bass isn't quite as perfect and maybe the hats aren't quite as crisp and everything but uh some of us got into exit stage left and then got in to moving pictures yeah. and i mean maybe maybe i don't know yyz has an amazing drum solo in the middle on exit stage left and there are you know some things about the exit stage left performances just you know crowd screaming whatever that that would have appealed to us as uh uh, 12 year olds um, so so my entry just like Jay was getting into the live and then going kind of backwards into the studio uh, they never stopped spinning out the singles though um, uh, RFM rock radio kept hitting us with Tom Sawyer Limelight uh, those two in particular Red Barchetta eventually yeah yeah that too you know, for me, one of the things I think that, and and I've I've made I've made the argument that you know ever since really a farewell to Kings, the Rush albums have been very very solid, but I do think that um, you know the the production here certain I I think this is sort of a high water mark in terms of the production. Um, you guys had sort of touched on on all of it. You know, all of the all of the instruments um, sound, you know, in, incredibly solid. They've they've got good tones. The the mix is 
you know, is, is where you want to be. I mean, you hear everything that you need or want to hear. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I and, and again, I don't know if, if that is part of this, you know, this, this sort of the importance of this album, you know, when, when I think about this though, one of the, yeah, well, and it's funny. I've, I've really tried, I've tried to avoid signals because I, yeah, I get myself confused very easily. I did listen to signals once and, um, I, 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 I almost said, can we just skip moving pictures and just talk about signals? <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I knew that would not be, uh, that wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't go over well. Um, but I was, I was actually, um, yeah. So, so that's how I got myself confused. But, but the the point remains that you know the production here is extraordinarily solid. And you know, I, um, it, it's a bummer that that Jay isn't here, um, because you know one of the questions that I have as listening to this and and doing sort of my research above and beyond is, you know, from a and you know you guys can maybe help me out here. Is, is there anything special that one has to do to produce Neil Peart? I mean, you hear absolutely everything this guy is doing in this record. You hear it all mm -hmm. in, in the minutest detail. And I'm thinking that that just doesn't happen. I mean, I've, you, you can point to any number of, of records where you know you can't even make out what what the drummers are doing, right? Um, and in this particular case, like um, Fishbone is another you know a, a band that has done this. But uh, go ahead, Colby. No, no, no. I was just you said Fishbone. It made me think of that. My <laughs> for me, Red Barchetta, That was one of the times where. His drumming was kind of tight and controlled, almost like a pop song. It was very understandable. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but for me, he's not a drummer. And who always has a very hard time keeping up with Kurt here. Um, I could always kind of go along with that drum. It was like, you know, it was like traceable. I could, I could sing along with it all. Yeah, so you know, I'm, I'm not 100 percent certain either, and I, I was, you know, and, and that's why it's a it's a bummer that Jay's not here because I, I do, you know, I sort of, well, I don't sort of, I very much value his opinion in terms of of drum, um, topics, but like I said, I was just, I was, I, I just, I don't know if as a producer you have to do something different to make sure that you hear everything that Neil does because he's he's a different cat, no doubt about it. I think uh, to uh, just add what you were saying, Joe. I think it's a it's a combination of a lot of things, and I think that's what makes Rush uh, really so magical, if you will. I I think that it's his playing, but it's the fact that they're playing all in their in in the pocket, and they really play off of each other in a way that um, you hear everything so yeah. quick and uh it's 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 a it's a synergy it's the songs it's the producer 
it's the you know it's the drum sound. I mean, it's it's really. I don't know if you could really just say it was one thing, but I know um, you know a song like Tom Sawyer. Um, it has so much great space to it. It's, it has a lot going on, but it just has this wide open space, and the song sort of gives all the instrumentation breathing room and uh you can hear everything and you know where does that come from i, I think it comes from all the above so i mean I, I think that's just the um the magic of the band oh um i i i, I was saving the geek math talk to the end but you know <laughs> if you're going in this direction i gotta just launch into this because i'm just fascinated with the tempos that they've got, um, you know, the, the, the fastest one, probably they say Tom Sawyer is 175, but I feel it at half that. And um, they say that, you know, limelight is around 130 beats per minute. And I, I probably feel it at half that. Um, that leads to talking about the wicked 16th notes that Neil Peart is so famous for. You can listen to these songs just at a low volume at a, and, and perceive the moderate tempo, the halftime tempo, or you can like pump it up and get your face into it and experience every single 16th note and start, you know, pumping it at the higher tempos. And that that's kind of kind of the beauty of it. It can be your background music that's just got a beautiful melody and uh, a reasonable heartbeat to it. Or you can just immerse yourself and go wild and, and, and feel the, the full tempo. Now, Ken, I, I, I've never heard this particular theory before. Is this something that you sort of stumble upon as you were listening to this multiple times? Sometimes you had it in the background, you were doing other things, and sometimes you were like really in there paying attention to it? Or Ex I mean Exactly, yeah, yeah. Either, either, you know, if I was at work with earbuds on, I'd, I'd have it at this low, crappy little, you know, sound, and uh, it would just kind of be, you know, background music to get through work. But I get in the car on the way home, and I'm blasting it, and I'm, like, really feeling these 16th notes and feeling the, 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 the you know, like, like, like if you try to play it, you know, not, not, not that I would ever try to play a Neil your drum part but you know then then you're then you're really busting your ass you know because it, yeah. because it's it, it, it's it's that fast well and and you know as as i continue to uh, to research for these albums what i come across continually is this i can't really describe it but it's almost like uh, and uh, I don't know a lack of patience with with Neil's drumming because I, I hear repeatedly, you know, comments headed in the direction of, you know, oh, there's Neil overplaying that again, or you know, oh, Neil didn't need to do that, or and, and I mean that's why I listen to Rush. That's what I like about, <laughs> Rush, you know, and, and and again it goes back to what I said a couple episodes ago where. You know, I, I think he, yeah, he is he busy? Absolutely. Um, but I never get the feeling that he's out of control. I, I have this, 
he's he's almost like he's he's the Rick Wakeman of drums. You know, I mean, he's he's all over the place and he's doing crazy stuff, but I never get the impression that he, you know, like, well, and they do it. He can stop at any time mm-hmm. and, and, you know, do something else. And I've also heard a bunch of stuff and, you know, me being me and not having sort of the in-depth knowledge and understanding that you guys do, you know, I, I guess... Uh, apparently one of the things that rush loves to do is jack around with time signatures, you know, with the same sort of riff. And, you know, so that's why it it sort of keeps your ears, you know, tuned in, even if someone like me doesn't know why I'm, I'm interested. So, yeah, I I don't know. I just, I, Hey Joe, Joe, do you want to credit that other podcast with all the, the rush, uh, Oh, well, yeah, we, we do have to mention um, Leave That Thing Alone, which I've been listening to a lot. There, And while we're talking about this, there's there's one section in particular on the Moving Pictures um, episode where they, they, they have a problem, generally speaking, when, when Rush goes into their reggae mode. Um, oh. you're, you're with them? I'm with them. I get it. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I don't think I have the same level of problem they do, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, it comes up occasionally, but but there was this one section. So one of the guys, um, Jay, on that on that podcast, I he apparently is a drummer, and he was talking about when he was taking drum lessons back when he was a, a wee young lad, and his drum instructor was was describing how how one should play reggae and basically you know i'll paraphrase and and i highly encourage everyone to go out and and listen to um leave that thing alone's episode on moving pictures just to find this it's it's near the the back of the episode as i recall but but to paraphrase his 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 teacher said really you should you should be able to play a reggae beat with one hand and drink a beer with the other (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Stuart Copeland, um, you know, we're talking about playing with one hand. He, they were playing live in concert somewhere, and this is according to my somewhat fractured memory. Um, and Copeland is holding, I think, the microphone in his right hand, and he turns around and he's talking to whoever has a camera behind him while he's still continuing to play along with the rest of what's going on with his left hand on his feet. And he's talking into the microphone. And I'm just, I'm looking at him going, I'm, how, how is that even physically possible? There is no way that your brain can be that disconnected from the rest of your body. Okay, well, and, and Lou Molino in, uh, in ARW can do it as well. But, um, you know, and, and apparently Neil doesn't. But, you know, I, I, you know, again, with, with, with me, you know, I, I know when they do these sorts of things and I, I just accept it as, you know, they want to do something a little bit different for a quarter of a song and that's okay. I don't have any problem with that. You know, I, I can remember, you know, back in the day when surface tension would play, you know, like reggae prom queen just for goofs, you know, (laughs) it was, but we weren't holding beer. That's well. That's true. We were not holding beer, but you know, I, I just I, I figured you know they're creative people, 
and they're going to want to explore and do things. I mean, isn't that what creative people do? I, I don't know. I think they uh, do it pretty well, but I mean, I, I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think it works. So that, why don't we uh, why don't we start getting into the songs a little bit here and and sort of work through this now? You know. Ken and, and Colby, you guys have already sort of touched on, um, you know, the elephant in the room, if you will, which is Tom Sawyer, which, you know, is it is it the most well-known and recognized and overplayed Rush song? Colby nods his head vigorously. <laughs> I can't think of another one. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that, that I can either. Um you know, when I when I listen to this, and, and obviously, you know, it's 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 a classic radio hit. It's it's you know, it's been played as much as as any song ever, probably. And you know, I everyone probably knows Tom Sawyer, but for me, and this goes back to all of this. One of the notes I wrote down here is that you know, for me, this is really Neil's song. I I find myself listening to the drums in this in this track. More so than maybe I do, you know, the the bass and the guitar, which is really kind of a weird way to approach to approach a, a popular song. But you know, that's that's where I'm at. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I have the question here: Are there are there any other popular songs that you know are are as identifiable um, via the the the, uh, the drums. I mean, if you think about, you know, what are what are and Tom, you were talking about this earlier. What are the the staples of, you know, of of rock radio? You know, the the Led Zeppelins and you know, I don't know what else is there. There's you know, Boston and the Who and all this other stuff. I mean, none of those bands have have a drummer like this. That, I mean, I know, yeah, the whole Keith Moon thing, but we've already sort of, I've already dismissed Keith Moon because I just don't get it. And that's, that's my own bias. I, I understand that. Okay. Well, I, I, Keith I think, being a very uh, good influence on Neil. What's that? Okay. I mean, Keith Moon ultimately was a very good influence on Neil because he wouldn't have taken such chances without that influence. You think? So, yeah, because I, I, I read that. He was into some of the crazy British drummers. He moved to across the pond and tried to break in over there. Uh, so, yeah, it would have been Ginger Breaker and uh, Keith Moon and whoever else. So, 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 so we, we acknowledge the influence. It, it did wonders for Neil, and then we move on. Okay. I'm good with that. So, uh, you know, what else is there to say about Tom Sawyer that, that – Everyone doesn't know. Is there anything? Is there anything we've missed, or anyone else has missed? Um, I have something I want to bring up. Uh, it has to do with. Uh, I wish Paul was with us because it has something to do with what Paul said last week in regards to um, Getty Lee's voice, and um, Paul said. Paul mentioned last week that he thought uh, the third verse of Free Will was the last time we hear the really high Getty voice. And 
I actually agreed with Paul last week. I think we might have all agreed with Paul. I'm not sure, but I, I, I certainly did. Until I listened to Tom Sawyer this week. And I, ha- I, I have to say, um, going through it, it may not be as long of that high pitch scream, but it is as high and he does scream. And in the verse, I think the reason why we don't hear it as such as in Free Will, because Free Will is a much more raw song, and that la- that third verse in Free Will is a longer, more grittier um, uh, time frame, if you will, uh, whereas the verse in Tom Sawyer, um, you still have that old school Getty Lee sound, but it somehow um, is more palatable. <laughs> uh, not that it, it hasn't been palatable to us, because you know we obviously like older Rush, but um, I just wanted to play a clip from a couple seconds of each song because um, I was anticipating uh, everyone disagreeing with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you do, uh, I was anticipating Paul disagreeing with me. So let's just, he's not here. Giggles, he's yeah, yeah. For shits and giggles, let's just say Paul's disagreeing with me. And um, <laughs> so I have, I would like to introduce uh, A and B. And um, this is third verse of Free Will. (laughs) This is Tom Sawyer. Okay, so is a little different, but I, I would. Uh, we're still. I guess my point is, and this is a silly point, but you know, this whole thing's really silly. Um, it's <laughs> part of the fun, of it, right? I mean, that's, that's, it's just fun being. Uh, it's fun, but I I would say that um, in in that we're we're still really hearing old school Getty in there, and I would say that this is probably the last, this would be the last time we really hear that. Because even if it's just a couple notes, um, we're, st- we're still hearing it. <laughs> mm. So what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's, I, I don't know that I necessarily agreed with you until you provided your evidence, Tom, which was quite compelling. But I will say that perhaps, you know, again, one of one of the the major differences, and, and free will was was moving in that direction, but I think, you know, the band and Terry had learned how to record and and mix that in with everything else. So you you know you, it does. You're not like climbing the walls when you hear it anymore, um, because I you know I had never really attributed that. Um, to this album, but 
but you know, you you illustrated it. There it is. But it, it somehow it comes across different. I mean, clearly, you know, if you think about it, and, and you could, you know, probably line up um, the, uh, the the temple of Syrinx in there where he just loses his freaking mind. But <laughs> that like grating and you know, whereas this, it's just kind of like, all right, that's cool. You know, it, it's it just it it translates much differently now than it did several albums earlier. Yeah, but it's also a, a different tempo. There's a really a, a thick keyboard presence in here. I mean, it's it's um, it's mixed a little bit more um, softer, more of a that introduction to the sort of eighties you know, reverbs and, and things like that, that sort of take the edge off of um, some of that stuff. Yeah. But um, I, uh, I, I just thought it was interesting because um, there really is a, an older Getty Lee sound. And last week we had been saying, okay, this is, we sort of found the last of that era. And it just struck me listening to Tom Sawyer that it, it, you, you might come up with an argument saying that, um, this was the last one, and oddly enough, it's like their biggest single ever. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, fast forwarding 35 years, I bet Getty, <laughs> which is he wrote that slightly differently. <laughs> he's, he's doing an E5 on that, and technically, Free Will is an F5, and Temple oh. of Syrinx Joe is an F sharp 5. So you are moving in the right direction with your intensity. Um, but looking at the uh, live videos, you know, uh, Getty would occasionally eke out one of those E5s, and then in the subsequent verses, he would, he would, he would do a little jazzy something. He would do a little something different to get through that line, because that's, that's a bitch to sing when you're a 60-, 70-year-old man. Well, and, and, you know, again, I've only ever seen Rush once, and that was in 2015, and Getty hey, as a vocalist was, was not good. It was, it was kind of a shame, actually. It was, I was very bummed out by the whole thing. Um, you know, I mean, the, the show was great, and the music was great, but Getty couldn't, couldn't sing most of, most of the parts and the songs that he had to. And, um, you know, I've seen I've seen some videos on YouTube from other shows um, on that tour, and it's not any better. So it, I don't think it was sort of a one off night. You know, I have a couple DVDs recently, you know, the, the Russian Rio and uh, I forget what the one after that was. But, yeah, obviously he struggled a lot there. But it's just it's huh. it's a, it's a difficult uh, I mean, it's difficult to sing. So, you know, yeah, I get it. It, it was probably difficult when he was 25 and it's not gotten any easier. <laughs> yep. All right. Now, we're you know, on the second track. Wait, wait, wait. One, one thing. And I, I need to put a marker in here um, because we'll, we're going to have to come back to this next episode when, when Paul is here, because didn't Paul have a very odd story regarding the guitar solo in Tom's, it was Tom Sawyer, wasn't it? No, oh, Paul had, had, had told us a story on the text um, a couple weeks Agreed. ago. He did. Yeah, uh, about the inspiration for this guitar solo. Um, oh, and, and here, 
here we have to give um, you know we have to give a, a shout out to our other our our fellow podcast brethren, the Yes Music Podcast, who have a apparently very soft spot in their heart for Sound Chaser from Yes's Relayer, and uh, you know we'll have Paul tell the story, but apparently Relayer some or uh, Sound Chaser apparently was was Alex's inspiration for this solo. And I just find that amazing. And, and Paul seemed to be particularly tickled by that. So I just want to put that out there so that we can, uh, we can come back to that. Because I, I want to hear him tell that story in its entirety. Mm-hmm. We, we might have to do some sort of addendum with, uh, with Paul uh, if he doesn't make it um, today. But, yeah. Uh, you know, as another general statement uh, for uh, moving pictures... I find it remarkable that this band was only six years old and just with Neil was not, I'm not counting the first album, Okay. but the rush that we know that is rush really. Um, this was, they were only six years old when they, this album came out. Um, I mean, we've mentioned this before about how quickly, uh, or I should say frequently bands came out with albums uh, back in the day and how impressive that was. Um, but, you know, it's incredible if you look at, you know, Fly By Night, the whole from Fly By Night till here, like six years. And you look at, you know, what happens now in six years. Uh, no. It's it's stunning. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I can't even fathom it. I mean, I know I often will look at like the Beatles career and they, you can say the same thing about them. Like it's like really their career was, they packed so much in to a short period of time. And, um, what they did in that time was, was really unbelievable. But I mean, so obviously rush has uh, a lot more going on in, in 40 years as rush, but to this point, I find it remarkable that they were only six years old as a band, and now we have moving pictures, and we still have you know, <laughs> like thirty-five more years to go. <laughs> uh, and um, it—it's—I don't know. It's just remarkable. Okay, so yeah, moving on to uh, to Red Barchetta then. Now, before we get into the song itself, has anyone read the the story? that inspired red barchetta i have not i have no. not i i would assume so but uh, apparently it's a it's called a nice morning drive by richard foster now again i haven't read it um maybe i should i made the comment um several episodes ago i think it may have been in conjunction with xanadu perhaps that when when they seem to put their mind to it, Rush has the ability to write music that is very good at conveying a sense of motion. And, you know, for me, I think this is one of those songs that, that certainly does that. I, I, it's very easy to sort of create the mental images that are being conveyed by the music and in, in the instrumental parts, sort of in between that, you, it, it, it just fits so well with the story, I think. Um, I find it 
personally remarkable. Um, although I do have the question of why doesn't the uncle drive the car? Triple. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Because he's white haired. <laughs> I mean you know, you know, he's 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 capable of keeping the car in tip top condition, apparently squirreling away enough gasoline for these little joy rides, and yet he himself doesn't drive it. It just it seems unusual to me. He's Mr. Miyagi and he's saving. <laughs> is that what it is? Oh. Yeah. Oh, he's like the Alfred to the Batman. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. All right. Well, I say this is one of my favorite Rush songs of all time. You know, it's hard. I have a hard time talking about drum parts because I don't have the the verbiage for it. But again, this drum, the, the drums in this song were like. I feel like drums are almost like the driving force they're like with the melody and they kind of drive the whole song which i get it they do in a lot of songs but for this one for some reason i don't know it's, it's just the interplay of the snare and the kick and it's it just it it weaves through the whole song really well um i i don't know how else to express it that's that's what i have for that well, what about uh, what were you saying about alex alex's guitars and having some you know what it is? It's the near, 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 near. the whole that refrain that keeps coming back with the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which yeah, guitar part. It just yeah, sounds so really. It sounds really light and thin. I feel like it should have been engineered a little more dramatically. I don't know, a little distortion, a little more delay, something to give it a little more. I don't know thickness. It's very important. It's important to the song because that is kind of the whole the whole it's kind of the i'm racing sort of feel to the whole song okay i get you i get you so so that's that's a that's a miss on terry brown's part absolutely totally at fault he was at times the comic levity to the gravity of the drums and bass so he may have been deliberate in his lightness at times. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. And I wish I had more time in my life to read, you know, interviews by the band and stuff. Because apparently there's there's plenty out there where they, you know, they talk about, you know, these albums. And, and I would love to hear, you know, because oftentimes... I, I've heard more sort of anecdotally through quotes by Neil and Getty and less so by Alex, but it does sort of raise the question of, you know, what, what was their perception of themselves in real time? I, I, I've heard that, you know, they were sort of lighthearted about themselves and they didn't take themselves too seriously. Um, you know, but, I, you know, when you talk about things like this, and and it's interesting, you know, th this is a this is a, a trio who who stayed together and and you know made albums for how many years? Thirty five or whatever. By the time they were all said and done, something like that. And you know, they went through a lot of different 
styles and changes and they and they did different things and from the outside it's very easy for us to sort of project in you know you know based on you know a quote here and there that you know Alex was unhappy with the with the synth era because you know the synthesizers were doing things that the guitars used to do and so obviously he didn't like all of that but you know and then but Paul came back I think last episode with the story about you know, you know, Neil and, and Getty kind of laughing about all the gadgets that Alex had, you know, and, and so I, I just I find it interesting and I wish I had more time to really delve in and, and maybe try to understand more about those dynamics in real time and, and what these guys were actually thinking, because, you know, I don't know. Yeah, the beauty of moving pictures being that they they brought it all together. We had uh, really <laughs> prominent synth that I loved on on, on Xanadu and then, you know. Uh, a couple albums later, they're just kind of nailing the synth sounds and nailing the blend of the synths with the guitar. And it's hard to say that they ever had the blend quite this perfect in, in the later albums because they got experimental and they did a few things that sounded maybe crappy. But yeah, this is this is this is the this is the the perfect mix, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, you know, I, I don't know that I've got anything else to add to the red barchetta section here. Um, you know, it just it's Tom Sawyer into this into YYZ. I think this album just it starts out monster, absolutely monster. And as many times as I've heard Tom Sawyer, I still like it. Um, and, and the fact that I have much less history with red barchetta means it still feels very f relatively fresh to me, which is nice. Um, you know, I, obviously I've heard that song, you know, a thousand times fewer than I've heard Tom Sawyer. So, you know, I, I definitely dig that. And then, you know, it, it moves right into YYZ, which, you know, it, I, I, one of the things that I did read um, with regards to that was, you know, the the band wanted to sort of go back and, and relive the joy of making um, Strangiato, but in a smaller package. And they gave us YYZ. So, you know, can't really argue with that. And Ballsy moved to make the third track. It's perfect. Why is it Ballsy, Ken? Um, just, just, they, you know... They, they essentially made their pop album, but they said, okay, we're going to do two tracks that are melodic with a lot of vocals. And then we're going to remind everybody really bluntly that we are a prog band and we are doing an instrumental on track three. Um, <laughs> and we're technically proficient. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they are technically proficient. Yeah, you know, and, and okay, so let's let's talk about the technically proficient thing. You know, again, you guys are musicians; you have some concept of this. Is 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 Rush just showing off because they can, or do they do these things because it's really really fun to do that? Um, Neil Peart likes to drive fast and ride motorcycles, so I think he's just, uh, he's one for the dopamine, man. He just loves it. And everyone else just kind of goes along for the ride? I think it's Getty showing off. 
You think it's Getty showing off? No, I think he's just that good. So, Tom, what are your thoughts on this subject? Um, I, I think that's how they play, and they're just really, really talented folks. Um, I was actually, oddly enough, I was asking myself the same question uh, today, actually. I was watching um, a video of them playing YYB, redoing it in the studio, and, um, you know, it sounded exactly like it did when they recorded it. Um, but, you know, they're, you're seeing the fingers move and you're seeing them, like every nuance that you hear on the recording, you're actually seeing them do it. And um, you're, it's, just, it, it's just really impressive. I think they're, they just do it naturally. And I, I don't know if they set out to do anything like, you know, mind-blowing. It's just that I think that they they um they're naturals and i don't think if they did i think that if they did something super wanky they probably you know unless it was like you know one on one of the really early you know prog albums they they probably wouldn't do it i mean because i i don't i don't really hear that anymore i don't hear anything um that is indulgent i hear maybe stuff that doesn't work um but it's not indulgent, and, and uh, I, I think that YYZ works from start to finish. But um, I had um, something I wanted to share. I know uh, most people who love Rush know this, but you know YYZ is the transmitter code for Toronto's uh, Lester B. Pearson International Airport, and um, you know. Uh, Every airport is um, assigned a three, a unique three-letter code, and the code is always being transmitted so that um, pilots can tell roughly where they are. Uh, I found, I'm sure you guys have heard this before, but I found the actual Morse code of this. It might be interesting for listeners to uh, to hear it, but I don't know if you can hear it over my Rottweiler eating his bone. But, uh, <laughs> here, here is the. Uh, Here's the YYZ Morse code. It's a, just the beginning, but that's it. Um, so that was the that was the motivation. That was the inspiration of the the beginning. I mean, that that was it. So yeah. Um, oh, thank God they changed the tones. Right. <laughs> I love stuff like that. Um, you know, when you hear, you know, when we were growing up and we heard stuff like that, it, it sort of, we got used to hearing crazy things that inspired them. And we almost got desensitized because they were smart in everything they do. Um, whether it was a, a novel that uh, Neil had read and, the lyrics were about this or that or, um, you know, the YYZ Morse code. I mean, they're, they're, it's really endless. So, I, I mean, I think, honestly, guys, we could actually do a whole other, from start to finish, rush from beginning to end and just talk about the lyrics and where they came from and really get into 
uh, things on a different, almost non-musical level. Um, Count me out. Then <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, not already. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I did hear that. Um, so, um, I love stuff like that. I love hearing about the, the Morse code and all that stuff. And it, it just, it really, uh, that, I think that's part of the, what we love about progressive rock, right? You, you have all the bands that we talk about. There's just there's more to it than, um, um, just, there's many levels to what we're, 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 we're hearing. Um, so that being said, I have a, a little bit of a, um, um, a fun factoid, fun factoid number three, um, as it relates to YYZ. I love it. And, and this fun factoid is that uh, YYZ um, was nominated and was the runner-up for the Best Rock Instrumental Award in the 1982 Grammys. And it lost to the police's behind my camel and i never knew that and uh, i thought that was interesting because i didn't think the grammys ever said the word rush <laughs> or instrumental uh, or or instrumental so uh, i found that interesting um another fun factoid for me being a sound designer um, great sound design. There is a sort of a common denominator, if you will, between sound and music. Um, say in like a, a thriller, uh, or there's you can add like tonal um, things that sort of create tension in sound the same way you can add them with an instrument with, with, with music. And um, the crashing noise, this is so. This sort of dives into sound and a, and a certain level. The crashing noise that we hear between the breaks of the guitar solo is the sound of wind chimes tied to a two by four slapped against a wood table. What? And, uh, yes, the, the band confirmed this in an interview on WNEW New York in the winter of two thousand two, hmm. and. It's the, um, it's just fun stuff that you do. Um, when you're a sound designer, you make sounds from things that you wouldn't think of. Um, and so I think on a, on a creative level, it just shows that they're on, on a creative, a creative level on all different levels to, to kind of come up with like a crazy sound like that, 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 that works. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The, the the sound the crash down in the solo yeah yeah i do yeah okay yeah it happens several times <laughs> ostensibly they've reduced their pot smoking by that point so you know <laughs> i guess yeah. uh yeah i guess uh they uh they, they were still creative though no doubt no doubt that they are very talented Group of, well, group. 
we spent half an our quarter of an episode talking about the China boy. So you know, once you've already done the China boy, what else is left other than you know taking your wind chimes and tying them to a two by four and slapping them on the table? Well, yeah. you know, <laughs> you've got to do what you've got to do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it was probably like you know, it, it was probably a happy accident. You know, something probably just like they probably fell over. Actually, this is another factoid. Um, oh no! They this was written in this whole album. Moving Pictures was written in a barn in, in Peter in Peterborough, Ontario. They rented a barn on on a farm. I I, I, I can prove it. It's I have the uh, the, the interviews. They rented a farm, and uh, they they wrote the all of moving pictures in a barn, and they it was in um, uh, Peterborough, Ontario. And so during the week they would write, and at night uh, uh, Neil Peart would go to his uh, the little house on the farm and work on the lyrics, and then on the weekends they would go back and see their families, and then come back on the week come back during the week and you know hash the the album out in a barn and they they did this for several, several weeks and um they loved this period because at this point they weren't under any um pressure by the record label um, to to do to do anything in particular so they were um they remember this particular period of time very fondly, but it was in a barn. So my actually, by the reason I brought that up is these bloody wind chimes probably fell over, okay, oh, yeah. and they probably went crashing down on something, and it was probably it could have been a happy accident, and they're like, oh, let's let's put that in, in the song, and uh, they 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 put that in the uh, guitar solo in those in those periods. You said they weren't under pressure from the record company. Is that because by that point they were in the limelight? No! <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very incidentally, nice. Incidentally, the slowest BPM on the album, Limelight. Um, right. Probably the best crafted tune in terms of just, you know, melody and pop sensibilities and earnest message so I, I i i was thrilled to stumble across limelight after years of not listening to it how about you guys i, I loved it uh you know i want to know why the fuck Eddie lee is in his in, in a dress in the video on stage he's wearing like a nightgown during limelight, and I, I, if I, I want to know what that's about. If you look at the video halfway through, wearing a nightgown. Um, so I know I'm kind of digressing from the song. It might have something to do with the pot smoking, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's interesting because I, I didn't know that. That's the first time I saw him in a, a robe or a, a night dress. <laughs> I did. Uh, so um, I, I found that I was kind of shocked at that. But I, 
I, um, of course, you can. I, 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 lo- I adore the song. I, I love the song. Um, but on a, a lighter side, some of the things I've been noticing, this was at the very beginning of the sort of MTV period, okay? It might have been, you know, a couple years before. It was, what, 81? Um, they put out a video for Tom Sawyer and Limelight, and it was the same thing. It was actually the same video. The, they were sitting in a studio, they were, and they're just playing it, and they're, they're wearing the same outfits, and they're just jamming on the song. And I guess what's different is in Limelight, they're showing cuts of them on stage <laughs> and in his in a in a in a nightdress. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I guess I, I'm I hate to digress, but it was it's it just the point that I'm getting at is that this was right before the MTV era or maybe at the actually beginning of it. So no one was really paying attention to videos. And they actually had this video identical limelight is identical to Tom Sawyer. They're wearing the same clothes. They're in the same positions. They're, they're just playing different songs. And the second one, they're just kind of cutting in through different yeah. things. So I found it interesting, the sort of um, the timeline of how videos became more prevalent or really relevant um as the 80s went on and this was definitely the beginning of that and mercury or anybody else in the management um uh, uh, real quick it goes back to the beatles performed hey bulldog in the studio but they used the footage for lady madonna's video so mm-hmm. you see a lot of that in the 60s and 70s the bands aren't necessarily performing the song that is playing when you're watching it so yeah there was definitely we're a lot better now but back in the day record companies were like who cares as long as you see the band just slap it all together right yeah yeah Yeah. but um song again getting back to what you were saying with the song it's it's incredible (laughs) the robe colby (laughs) the robe (laughs) <laughs> is that the robe? No, gonna, I, I told you he had a robe. Sure we, we're going to make sure we get these uh, these links to Paul to add to the show notes. So I've I've officially reached angry, grumpy old man stage. Nice. Been there for years. Have you? Because because when I was listening to this, you know, I, obviously I know Limelight. I've heard it. You know the better part of my life and everything else. And, and musically it's, it's great. And the melody is wonderful, but I just, I, I found these lyrics to be extremely off putting at this point. I, I really? just, I, yeah, I, I just find it to be whiny and narcissistic and I don't give a shit. Ooh. <laughs> wow. Ooh. Wow, and I was kind of I was surprised by that reaction because, like I said, I've been listening to this for years, but I'm just like, I could give a rat's ass. Would you call it fake humility? 
No, I don't think it's fake. I think it's genuine. I just don't care. You know, it's complicated. You know, I've read the background. I know Neil is, he shies away from, you know, the look at me, I'm a big rock star. You know, he never wanted any of that. And I've read the stories where he just, you know, on tour, he would hang out in his hotel room and read books all night. Uh, so I get it. But at the same time, it does sound a little bit, you know, the rest of us wish we could have that kind of thing, but we can't. He's lucked into it. Lucked. Maybe not lucked. That's not the right word, but you know what I mean. It, you know, he's got it. And I, I totally get it. Being an introvert, it's very easy for me to sort of put myself in that yeah. position and say, God, I would probably lose my mind. But, you know, it's like, I, I don't know. I, I And again, I'm, I'm a grumpy old man. I get it. When, when people, um, you know, like my mother will do this sometimes or, 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 you know, other people, when you're talking about watching a football game on Christmas, right? Or, or you know, and everyone's like, oh, those poor people they have to be away from their family on Christmas. And I'm like, bullshit. Yeah. They're making fucking $5 million a year. They can work on Christmas Day. I will. You could be a fantastic pitch digger. And is that better? Yeah, you know, and so when, when that's sort of the, that's the lens that, that I heard this in. And it was just, it was funny that I, I was, I reacted so strongly to it. I, I really didn't expect it, but there it is. Um, I'm officially a grumpy old bastard. The only thing I was going to say about the lyrics is it's kind of sobering and sanguine and, and humble throughout. And then the very last line for me is like a Beavis and Butthead moment. It's like the, the underlying theme. And that, that's when he, he's like, you know, we, we did this whole rock song straight but we have to parody ourselves in the very last line. We have to go for the, we have to go for the money notes in the very last line and be rock and roll. So <laughs> I, I, I laugh every time I hear the last underlying theme because it, it's <laughs> so rock. So, and now we get into the part of the record that, you know, I was not, uh, I was not familiar with and it's, you know, I, I, I have no concerns with the back half of this album. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily understand at this point what the hell we're talking about with the camera eye. But agree. I, I, I don't know that I don't like it because of that. <laughs> I mean, I, I get that there's London and New York involved here, but I, I'm, I'm not 100% certain what we're actually trying to talk about or why I should care about it. I am willing to go to bat for camera eye. Um, okay. No. When no. I... <laughs> no, you, you cannot. Um, yeah. Um, uh, there was a simulcast. I, 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 I recall very vividly there was a simulcast between FM radio and MTV, and I had the boombox recording exit stage left off of FM, and I was watching MTV and I was just amazed with this band that I vaguely heard of and the music 
that served as the backdrop for J.J. Jackson's MTV VJ voice was Camera Eye. So so they would play that, and then they would break to commercial, and then they would come back, and they would play that. And after like 10 or 15 minutes of pissing around and playing with our emotions, they finally broke in to the concert. And um, just just, just the repetition of, of hearing the opening to camera eye stuck with me. And, and it just proved to be a teaser, it, fantastic music to just, just drag me in. And when I, when I hear it now, I go back to that kind of 12-year-old fascination. Well, yeah, I mean, anytime you have sort of a, a powerful experience like that, um, it, you know, it's going to stick with you, even if it is completely irrational to your later self, you know, I, I, I totally understand that. <laughs> okay, but I heard the rest of the song and the streets of Manhattan, that whole thing, that melody, it still blows me away. Even so, so. yeah, no, I, 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 and like I said, I, I totally get it. I, I enjoy the song, and you know, I, I understand what you're talking about. I've, I've felt some of what you're feeling. I still just don't understand what it's about. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Now, do I have to understand? Apparently not. I've uh, I've lived a, a long, healthy, and enjoyable life, not understanding most of what I, I actually hear um, <laughs> in music. So. It's not that long. What are you saying? I'm saying your life is <laughs> not been that long. You've got a lot longer to go. <laughs> let's hope let's hope i survive the uh the parade on thursday there you go tom colby anything to add on on the camera eye i hate it do you i listened to the camera eye when i prepped for this whole thing and it, it just sort of grated on my nerves but it did remind me of the whole cats through rush thing which is meow 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 i mean you have the meow is just fantastic for so many songs. You can use it in so many ways. And like I said, free will. Um, you know, meow, 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 meow. It's kind of like meow mix, right? I mean, that's sort of the genesis of the whole idea, probably. But yeah, there's a ton of Rush songs to do that with. Cats do Rush. I think there's a market for an album there. <laughs> well, there's there's recordings where they they've turned the songs into lullabies. Why not do that? You know? Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, not with the camera. Okay. So, Mojo? I love it. I I love it. I, I I think it's great. Now, have you always loved it, or is it a new thing, or? You know, I, I, I've always loved it, but I think now that we're talking, we mentioned keyboards, these keyboard sounds really defined a decade. I mean, this was the beginning of the 80s, and we started off on a very profound level as far as, um, I mean, all of the pop stuff we hear with, with keyboards, um, when I hear... The keyboards on this album, 
namely, you know, going back to Tom Sawyer, but certainly this song, um, there are any songs on this album. It really just puts me in that place in that decade, um, but in the right place in the decade. There's bad places you can go um, in the 80s. Um, but I, I think that these are just really um, appropriate, um, just beautiful keyboard sounds that uh, are, they just, they, they put a stamp on it. They, they put a stamp on their sound and they put a stamp on the decade with, with these sounds. Um, I think uh, they're not an afterthought. And we've talked. We've talked a little bit about this with other stuff. You know, some stuff earlier stuff. The keyboards may have been an afterthought or whatever. This was just a really great mix uh, <clears throat> of um, guitar and keyboard, and the keyboards just really said something. And this, you know, the camera eye is is a great example of. Uh, when that comes in, um, you know, pardon the term, but I'm transported into that time, and I'm transported at that time and place, and it's it's a sound as yeah, man, man, man. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's it. You invited cool. me. <laughs> So from uh, from the camera eye, we go into Witch Hunt, part mm. three of Fear. Dun, dun, dun. I meant to look up those lyrics. Is, Witch Hunt, um, is there sarcasm in there? And, and, you know, what forces was he against? I, I don't know. It just... just you, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um you know, again, and and I think Paul has has touched on this. My my gateway album was was Grace Under Pressure, which actually has part one of Fear, I believe. So he they they actually released Fear in reverse order, right? Um, and and yeah. Paul said one time he he listened to the three parts of Fear one, two, and three, and it actually wasn't anything worth writing home about, um, which I can understand. Um, sonically, those those albums are very very different from each other. But I did want to, at some point, and I've got two more albums to uh, to do this, to at least take the lyrics and put them in the right order and see if there's any sort of coherence to them. I, I'm not sure that there will be, but it's something that I do want to do. Hmm. You know, there's too many things that. With fear in our catalog now, like when we say fear, we have a, a Toad Let's Rocket album, we have a Marillion album, and we have this. Like I'm not sure w what even we're talking about with this with fear. I'm I think I'm missing something. What? Well, and and I I think as we go through the next couple albums and we we get to the other two parts of fear, and again I'm I'm not. I'm not learned in this, so I don't really know. I probably should just shut the hell up. But my my guess is is that Neil had these this this larger piece of of lyrics that got split up into into different 
um, ultimately different songs. Now, as, as I'm sitting here looking at the lyrics, um, and I'm trying to think of what the song was where he did this um, in the last episode. And I, I, I freaking, I, it's it's just eluding me. But where he, he basically started out, um, you know, leading you down the primrose path that it was, you know, some sort of hobbity shit. But in actuality, it was it was just about, um, you know, using metaphors on how people hurt each other in a relationship. So when you look at this. Witch Hunt sort of opens up the same way. You know, you're talking about um, night is black without a moon, vigilantes, torches, um, flickering lights, um, mob moves like demons possessed, um, confident their ways are best. Now, there, there are certain sort of trigger words in there that evoke that that sort of proggy fantasy, you know, uh, um image is which on but then but but then when you get down and it's the same exact thing so after he sort of sets you up then he pulls away the curtain and says here's what i'm really talking about so they say there are strangers who threaten us in our immigrants and infidels they say there's a strangeness too dangerous in our theaters and bookstore shelves those who know what's best for us must rise and save us from ourselves so suddenly all of that sort of misdirection is gone. All of those, all of those trigger words that, you know, you pick up when you hear it and make you think one thing are now suddenly laid completely bare. And he just comes right at you and says, Hey folks, pay attention to here. This is really important to me. Um, Good, good. That's what I was pointing at with the sarcasm. That those yeah. who know what's best for us must rise and save us from ourselves. I think that is very, very sarcastic as, I, as I'm reading these, these lyrics. And, you know, I, I, and again, I think this will be interesting, and this is something that I want to sort of to, to really get into then myself, is I want to see what the other two parts of fear are. Um, but it seems to me, and, and again... You can say, and there are a lot of instances where Neil's lyrics come across goofy to downright ridiculous, but there are there are some some little nuggets like this where it's almost like you know, oh, okay, hey, that was probably really cool back in the day, and hey, it's not so bad today either, you know. So I I, I find this interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, again, this is the second time that I've sort of picked this out, and I I, I really dig it when um, when Neil does this. Like I said, he 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 sets you up, and you think you're hearing one thing, and then and it turns out that you're really not. And I just I, I appreciate that sort of a sort of a setup. Very good. Nice. Yeah. And then that leaves us with, with just vital signs. So, guys, we have to talk about vital signs. Do we? We have a ghost in our closet. We do. I don't know if 
we have discussed you you guys may have discussed this um and i wasn't around or you guys but this is amazing um and can you back back me up on this um what am i the last person to understand that Sunset Serenade completely ripped off the first couple bars of Vital Signs? Wait, musically or lyrically? Lyrically. Um, listen to Exhibit A, please. Uh, listen to this, please. All right, we might have to cut this out. It's secret proprietary stuff that was never released, but, but go for <laughs> it. Proprietary? What are you talking about? No, no, this is a vital signs. Listen. That. That is the exact chord progression. Da, 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 in Sunset Serenity. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. But you don't have a copy of Sunset available for that. But I see what you're saying. I used to be yeah. able to play that. Oh, God. Wow. Up until like probably seven or eight years ago, I could still play that and I can't play it now. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Okay. Who knew? So, well spotted. Has uh, has anyone talked about that? I mean, even years no. ago, did, did it ever come out that because it's the exact even style of guitar, um, the effects, the progression, the the beat. Dun, 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 dun. Did, I mean, it's like did, the exact piece. You could actually take that and put it right into Sunset Serenity. Did okay. It was like an acoustic-y Spanish vibe, and this is like kind of techno prog, but sure. Okay. Did did Dan listen to Rush? I, I don't I I don't know enough to say that if he did or he didn't, but uh, I I think we all did. I mean <laughs> I mean I, well, I, I, I know I know we all did. <laughs> uh, he I may mean, have actually I'm had the moving I mean, pictures cassette. Okay. Yeah, I think he was one of the few people I knew who actually had the moving pictures to set. Okay, well, there you go. Okay. Circumstantial evidence puts him at the scene of the crime. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we, we take a little bit of a, a weird turn on uh, Palaver every once in a while. But uh, anyway, for the listeners uh, who are wondering what the hell we're talking about, it's a, it's a song that uh, one of us had had written when we were in high school and it's um the same chord progression and we're just sort of finding we're just sort of finding that out now and, uh, um, yeah all right so uh vital vital signs according to the wikis and the interviews was written very quickly in the studio and neil admits it was rhythmically challenging to their audience uh, because it was, you know, a very fast kind of version of their ethnic reggae, various styles. 
and it didn't catch on right away, and they forced it down their audience's throats for three tours <laughs> until the folks got it. And even on one tour, they forced it as an encore. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I love it. As a band, they liked this so much that they just kept forcing it on their audience, and eventually folks bought into it. But, I mean, I really dig just the whole function in the form and the deviate from the norm, and I, I never had a problem with it. I always thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Like I said, this is obviously one of the songs that I wasn't even aware of until I bought this album you know, later in life. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. The, the, the function and the form line really, really gets to me. And, and um, you know, I like how the first time it's it's uh, deviate from the norm, and then it's elevate from the norm. Yep. Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of dig that. Yep. Now I will say, as I, as I've as I've flipped to the back of my my booklet here to um, review the lyrics, and right next to it is the the instrument credits. So Neil is credited with drum kit, tabala, gong, bass drums, orchestra bells, glockenspiel, wind chimes, bell tree, cretales, cowbells, and plywood. Yeah, that's uh, that's showing uh, Plywood. <laughs> <laughs> Everything but the table, Tom. <laughs> nice. Hey, look how many instruments I played. Plywood. Yeah, plywood. <laughs> I mean, how many? How many other rock albums, prog or otherwise, credit plywood to mm -hmm. their drummer? I mean, that's. There. You know this 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 gets this gets their entrance. You know this punches their prog card right here. Nice. All right. So that brings us through the end of moving pictures. Now we didn't talk about the cover and all of the clever bit with the cover, but yeah, it's a it's a triple entendre, and you know everyone talks about it all, all the time. Every Every podcast, every article, yeah, we, we get it. So I will acknowledge the fact that the, the album is a very clever triple entendre and leave it at that. <laughs> nice. It's such a good introduction to Exit Stage Left, it could almost be its own album. <laughs> now, let's talk Exit Stage Left, because um, Exit Stage Left comes after Moving Pictures, is that correct? Yes. And we have, up to this point, eschewed talking about live albums. Do we need to fancy, change that? Fancy word. I know. Well, you know, Paul's got the pressure on me to come up with these 25-cent words for the dictionary. So I, I try to feed him, you know, treats every now and again. What about, what about the other podcasts? Did Leave That Thing Alone do uh, moving pictures? Or, Leave I mean, That Thing Alone did... Did not. Now, again, to, to date, they've only gotten through Grace Under Pressure. They threatened to talk about the live albums, but the their their general feeling, and, and I totally agree, is why would they talk about a live album? Because they've already talked about all of the songs on that album. Um, but what I do find interesting is 
you know, again, as you talk to, listen to, read about Rush, um, exit stage left always comes up. Yeah, you know? I just, I know Jay liked it. So if he ever gets his Skype working, let's let's make the next time we dial in a, 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 at least a short conversation on moving pictures. Yeah. Or now, exit now, stage left. God. Now, Tom... You have said your favorite is a show of hands. Yeah. Ooh. I love Ooh. show of hands. I've Ooh. listened to show of hands more than any Rush album. Even any really? studio album. I, I, you said, you said exactly the same thing last week. <laughs> Did I? Uh-huh. Oh, well. I'll just <laughs> shut up. <laughs> no, no. It's okay. Well, no, I, I, it's interesting because one of the guys from Leave Leave That Thing Alone, um, he says the same thing. You know, they, they were talking about Exit Stage Left and sort of ad, acknowledging its importance, but he himself says, but Show of Hands is my favorite live album. So I, I just find that interesting. I actually have Show of Hands, and I don't ever listen to it. So, hmm. and, and I... Yeah, I just I just bought Exit Stage Left because you guys couldn't stop talking about it, and I'm like, I got to see what all the fuss is about. Um, so yeah, maybe we can spend a couple minutes just sort of dealing with it. But um, yeah, all right, gentlemen. I know we had some technical difficulties, but it's been fantastic as always. Um, I appreciate your patience and your input, and this will put a pin in the seminal Rush album, Moving Pictures. Next time, whenever that is, we will convene and discuss um, signals. And rock on. All right, gentlemen. Rock gods. I'll see you next time. Rock it. All right, later. talk to you later, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We certainly enjoyed going through the Rush catalog, and things are really now starting to get interesting. And um, as always, we look forward to your thoughts, your comments, your questions, your thoughts, um, whatever you'd like to share with us. You can email us. We are progpala at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us on either Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at progpala on all of those or you can search for Progressive Palaver. We also have a YouTube channel with a couple of interesting things out there, which we encourage you to check out. And as always, Progressive Palaver is available for both subscription and download on both iTunes and Google Play, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. We look forward to uh, the next episode when we finally get to talk about Rush's signals.